The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. So we've been talking about what does it mean to thrive by the gospel, the word of God, Christ coming into our lives. What does it look as an individual? Christ came and he says, I give you life and I give you this life abundantly. Uh, I give you this life in such an overproportion uh, that it is to take root and to spill over and to go in and affect uh, the people that you come into contact with within the different domains that you have in your life. Uh, that the heart is so transformed and it is the wellspring of life uh, that the water that's flowing out of our lives uh, then positively impacts for Christ all of those that we come in contact with. I'll think of it this way. That that abundant life in Christ, that thriving as an individual is in such a way that everybody who drinks from your fountain, think about that. Think who drinks from your fountain. If you're married, your spouse. If you have children, your children come and drink from your fountain. If you're in work, the people that you engage in your work with. If you're in school, uh, if, if you're on a team, whatever it is that you're doing, other people come and they come to you and they're drinking from your fountain. You have to ask the, the question, how's the water? How's the water? Is it new life water uh, that's springing forth with abundance to say, here, uh, this is what I know. This is how I live. This is for whom I live. Uh, This is the abundance and the thriving that I have in Christ. And I want you to drink some of that flourishing water so that it can then get into your life and, and, and allow you to begin to flourish through the goodness of God in that. And so we said that we want to see us as individuals thriving. Then that concentric circle moves out, and we said that individuals, though, are always within uh, family groups, be it uh, a nuclear family of a husband and wife and children, or a blended family, uh, a single family, a single parent family, whatever family, if you're empty nest, or uh, whatever it is, the family that God's given you, what does it look like for your family to thrive? That families within our culture are under attack, families within our culture are having a difficult time standing and staying together. And most of them are just sort of holding on and hoping to make it to the end. And they're worried and parents are fretting and children and students are fretting and everybody's fretting. So what does it look like to thrive as a family? And then if the church is simply the gathering of individuals and families uh, together as God's bride, his family, his, his grouping, then what does it mean for the church to thrive? And that's what we're going to look at today. And then next week as we end the series, we're going to talk about what does it mean uh, for our community to thrive because we're in it. The scripture says, where the righteous are, the city prospers. It it speaks of this imagery of where the righteous walk through desert and arid lands that they leave behind pools of water, of life where they've been. Isn't that the hope for the church and for our community? That because Hilton Head Presbyterian Church exists, that it and through us is flowing life to, to our island and to the low country in Bluffton. That's our hope. That's our promise. That's what we want to believe. That because we exist, our communities can thrive as well. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 54. We're going to be reading together God's word from his people who were in a tough situation. But God gave an incredible vision to his people And he spoke boldly to them and made bold promises to them and encouraged them to live in a way that truly can be categorized as thriving. Out of respect for the voice of the king, 
I invite you, it's not a tradition necessarily of our church, but one historic, to stand now uh, in reverence for God's word as we hear it read uh, this morning. This is the very word of the Lord. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who had not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. And let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony. And lay foundations with sapphires, and I will make your pinnacles of agate, and gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of the coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. God, would you add now your blessing to the reading and hearing of your word. Speak. For your people, listen. Amen. You may be seated. Today we're going to look at three simple statements and unpack them. The first is this, that circumstances do not limit God's vision for his church. That the current circumstances, that our circumstances do not limit God's vision And we're going to see that God gives us, in the midst of that, God gives us an incredible vision. God gives us an incredible vision. First, that it's our current circumstances don't limit it. Then we're going to hear what that vision is, an incredible vision from the Lord. And then finally, to see that God provides everything that we need to accomplish his vision. Judah, the southern kingdom, was standing alone. Israel had aligned itself with Syria, and there was a war and a battle, 
and Judah was losing and had lost. They were tempted to align themselves with the pagan nation of Assyria, and they did against the will of the Lord and against his advice through his prophets. And so they stood on the precipice of destruction. They stood and they looked, and you would have thought that they would have learned from the example of Israel, of what had happened to Israel, uh, their brothers to the north, but they didn't. And they stood against the Lord, and they went and did their own thing. And what you begin to see within the context of this is within Judah, there were many righteous people. There were many believers who stood before the Lord, who stood and believed in coming Messiah, uh, who believed that God was who that he said that he was. But what they were seeing was that the influence of the church there uh, was diminishing that their voices had been muted within the culture of the day. There were moral failings within the leadership of the church. There were just simply bad leaders in place, both politically and and within the church and clergy. Families were being torn apart. Cities were left and being left in desolation. There was a breakdown of the very fabric of society uh, within Judah. That it was a place with little hope for the church. That they looked around and wondered, could they do anything at all? Had God forgotten them? Uh, What in the world were they supposed to do now? A Pew report came out in 2014 that showed that in America, that between 2007 and 2014, the number of individuals within our culture Uh, who uh, aligned themselves with a category called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, that they have no affiliation religiously at all. That that number has now grown to uh, somewhere close to 24% of the population in America has no religious affiliation whatsoever. That number is larger than the Roman Catholic Church in America. That number of nuns is larger than the mainline denominations of America. Evangelicals, those who would profess what we profess, though a a difficult category to determine uh, a little bit, uh, is just a few uh, parts above that. Maybe somewhere around 26% of our culture would say they're evangelicals. And so what we find is that the church is shifting and changing. That many of those nuns said, 49% of them said that they simply don't believe anymore in the things that the church teaches. For a large number of them, they went off to college, and they went off to college, and they stopped going to church. They were introduced to evolutionary theory. Uh, They were introduced to systems and philosophies that were against the church, and they hadn't been prepared well within the church to stand for what they believed or even to know what they believed, and they left the church, never to come back. Another large portion of those that have gone to the nuns say that they're just tired of Christians living non-Christian lives. That if they want hypocrisy, they can find that anywhere else uh, in our culture. They don't need to go to the church to find it. And so what we're seeing within our culture in our day is that the church is being marginalized. That its voice is being muted. That our families are in disarray. That there's a seeming sense of hopelessness. That there are bad leadership choices within the church. There are moral failings. There are churches uh, which... Uh, don't seem to represent what would a biblical church might look like uh, in their beliefs. There seems to be 
a place where many people within the church are simply losing hope. Does that sound familiar? I think you can relate to the people of Judah a little bit. And if you can, then that means that God, in all of his incredible wisdom and knowledge, who sent Isaiah to speak directly to the people of Judah uh, in the 8th century B.C., that he also knew that those words held and preserved over all of these centuries had something to say to us today in 21st century America. Because you see, our circumstances do not define or limit God's vision for his church. Because the circumstances of the church look an awful lot like they did way back when. That there's a, a growing sense of hopelessness within the church today. Hoping that God's faithful to his promises, but not convinced of it. Wondering if God has forgotten of, about us. Christians, and many of you in our church, are so concerned about November 11th. Because somehow, if one party wins and the other loses, everything is lost. There's a, there's a loss within the church. The voice of the church is lost within our culture. That cities are desolate because the church uh, has moved, because the church has had to follow the population shifts, and the church has moved out of the places of influence. That we have very little influence in Hollywood because Christians don't live in Hollywood. We have very little influence within the financial markets uh, of New York because Christians don't live in New York. Uh, that we have little or no influence within the city centers because Christians move out of the cities. That we don't have influence within poverty and urban strife because there are very few Christians who are living there anymore. At least white Christians uh, have moved out in droves. And so we see this unraveling, as it were, of the church and circumstance. And what we find within our lives, our own personal lives, is that lack of hopelessness. Being tossed about, feeling desolate, wondering, is there, can anything be done? That we're terrified. Uh, I'm a father of three boys, two of which are in college. And sending them to college and wondering, are they going to be a statistic? Uh, are, are they going to walk away from the faith? Are they going to be influenced by culture so much so that the things uh, that we've taught them uh, within our home uh, the things that we believe, the values that we hold, will they hold those to be their own? Will they be able to withstand the onslaught? We see our teenagers uh, just getting decimated within our culture and looking around and wondering, what's happening? I know so many of you as parents, we talk. Parents understand each other, right? I keep saying I want to start a Parents Anonymous group where we walk in, and all I can say is this, hi, I'm Bill McCutcheon, I'm a parent. And you know what that means. You laugh, but you know what that means. You, you know that that means I'm so honored to raise three boys, but I'm so overwhelmed by raising three boys. That I'm so wounded by choices that they've made and, and the guilt and the shame that comes to me of wondering, am I a good dad or not? What's happening? And to walk into a group of people and go, yeah, I'm, I'm with you in that. And you can look and go, I'm with you in that. But most parents, most individuals, most people within the church, be it uh, married, single, I don't care. Most of us live individual lives together with other people. You live alone in the midst of a lot of people. And there's a hopelessness that comes. 
that you relate to the barren woman. You, you relate to the person who said, I had such hopes. I, I had such dreams and they seemed to be gone. Boy, I, I didn't think that this was the way that my life was going to turn out. And if that's the individual person's view and holding, then what happens in the collective group of the church? Well, the church begins to buy into that same thing. The church collectively begins to believe in the borders and the boundaries that we've arbitrarily set up that say this, this is who I am. My circumstances define me. My, my circumstances don't just describe me, they define me. There's a massive difference between those two things, by the way. Being described and being defined. And we say, gosh, there's really no hope. So what we need to do is rally all the troops and turn inward. We need to take care of our own. We need to protect the borders. We need to protect the walls. We can't let our culture get in. We can't let it happen. We're not going out. It's not safe out there. So we turn internal and we come and we become tribal in nature. And we look, and we look around and we wonder, well, they, we know there are issues of poverty, but we don't have anything to say to poverty because we're impoverished. We know that there's uh, racial issues, uh, but we know that we don't really have anything to say within the tensions of race and injustice within our culture because that would make us step out into places that we're not comfortable going and being associated with people that we're not comfortable being with. Uh, that we just finally sit down and we just say, I just want to make it to the end. If I can just make it to the end and my kids are with me, then I've succeeded. But you don't have any vision beyond that. That's what Judah was experiencing. That's the voice that Christ is speaking into that. When he says, sing, O barren one. Sing aloud, you who have not labored. You're children of the desolate ones. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off, says the Lord. Oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. When I ask you how you're doing, now you've got some language to use. I'm feeling storm-tossed and afflicted and not comforted right now. And for many churches, I know in talking to so many pastors, I just got back this summer from our national gathering general assembly for our denomination and talking with so many pastors who are just discouraged talking with a friend and mentor uh, this week um, who said you know if all you're experiencing are losses along the way people leaving your church marriages breaking down families breaking down no real influence in the community no one really coming to faith through the ministries of your church after a while of experiencing all of these little losses you just want to sit down and go Man, just as long as some folks show up, we're good. That's the circumstance. But folks, the circumstance does not define who we are, and it for sure does not limit God's vision. We've got a tough circumstance. Would you guys agree with that? Would you agree with the circumstance of our culture? That culture isn't all excited about the church. We don't have a voice at the table most, for the most part anymore. We're not invited to the table anymore. We've thrown all of our chips into political alignments. And guess what we're finding out? Those don't work. We've gone back to Judeo-Christian values. And that's not the point. The point is to go back to Christ. 
and values are driven out of that. So we've forgotten Christ, and we see all of this confusion and mixing up within our culture. And what we do, the natural thing that we do, is we begin to define vision based on that. And we say things like this, God can't do more than what he's currently doing. God can't do that. God can't do this. And so we just hunker down, and we bring the walls in, Now, we spruce the walls up, maybe. We add a welcome center and a student center and some new parking and hopefully some new air conditioning. Uh, And we, we make it look good, but at the end of the day, it's just a box with a very limited vision because our culture is so out of whack and the church within the culture is so out of whack that we don't believe that we can do more than this. Hear this, our current circumstances don't limit God's vision. And hear this as well. God, in the midst of our current circumstances, is giving us a vision, an incredible vision for his church. An awesome vision. I'm going to get a little fired up today, and you may or may not. First service was not. It's hard to preach to when you're fired up to a non-fired up group of people. So I'm not expecting you to fake it, put a smile and an amen every now and then. Thank you, Pat, uh, for that. It's okay with me. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Here's this incredible, audacious vision. Enlarge the place of your tent. And let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. The Lord gives us a vision that can only be accomplished by him through us. No one in Judah would have come up with this vision statement, by the way. The elders of the church, the board of trustees of the company would not have said, hey, Assyria is massing troops on the outside. Israel has already fallen. We are going to fall. Here's a great strategy. Let's expand. Let's believe great things right now that God's going to do in our midst. We have city problems because the cities are empty. We have family problems because the families are broken apart. We have leadership problems because the leaders uh, are doing their thing. Uh, we, here's what we should do in the middle of that. Let's think larger. Let's think greater. One of my friends and a mentor, Andy Pope, who's here this morning, says regularly this statement. Dare to attempt something so great for the kingdom of God that it is doomed to failure lest Christ be in it. Do you believe that? I don't think we do, actually. It's wonderful. It sounds so good. But what I found, I just finished an exercise with our staff of writing uh, our ministry plans for the coming year. Our ministry year is September 1 through August. And what I found, by and large, for most of us, myself included, that I'd hunkered down into maintenance. I'd hunkered down into making sure that we can maintain what we've got and maybe expand it a little bit, make it a little better, uh, change a few of the accoutrements and do some things. But in general, it was really safe. They're good plans. They're just safe. Because by and large, Christ doesn't have to show up for us to accomplish most of them. 
this vision says expand your tent. Expand your influence. Believe that God can do immeasurably more than you ever dared dream or imagine in Christ Jesus. Believe that the church is the most powerful entity in the entire world in all ages. Do you believe that? Awesome. Let's go. Man, that Christ has said this. I didn't empower Washington, D.C. I didn't empower the Kremlin. I didn't empower Paris. I didn't empower Beijing. I empowered my church, which is present in D.C. and which is present in Beijing and which is present in the Kremlin, which is present everywhere. But I empowered my church. That's where I live and thrive. That's where I have taken up residence. That's where my power and my vision are going to be lived out is through the church. Through the vision and the ministry of the church. And look at these incredible, crazy things that God's God's nuts. He's saying to barren women who can't have children, who in this culture was a mark of shame and of loss. He's speaking to men and women, but women here, at least in this context, whose husbands have discarded them. They got old a little bit and they got a wrinkle or two and they moved on to number two and got rid of number one. And he's speaking to these women and he's saying in the middle of your barrenness, in the middle of your shame, in the middle of your loss, sing, rejoice, shout for joy. He doesn't suggest it, by the way. Hey, if you feel like it today, I'd like you to sing a little bit more than you currently are singing. If you feel like it today, if the circumstances around you change, uh, then I'd like you to rejoice in me. No, he says it as a declarative. Rejoice. Rejoice. Sing in the middle of your circumstance, which is hard, which is difficult. Rejoice. His vision begins with worship. His vision begins with a church that worships. John Piper said that the reason that missions exist is to see the world worship the king. That's the end goal of missions, by the way, is to see the world come and worship the true king. And the best way to do that is for us to worship him, is for us to have a belief that he is worthy of our praise, that he is worthy of our joy, that in the middle of a pretty horrible situation, a difficult place, whatever it may be, that there's still reason and cause for joy. And so his vision begins with worship And singing, one of my professors told me one time, Bill, you show me a person who doesn't sing in church and I'll show you a person who has a spiritual problem. It's true, if we don't sing, something's going on. For God has given us a reason to sing, even if you're really bad at singing. It's okay. The next thing that he says in this vision is to expand your tent. To see that the church is to expand its reach within our communities and our culture. That the vision of our church, part of it in reestablishing this campus and expanding this campus, was to say this. There's 3,700 students across the street. Do we have something to say to them? Do we have anything to offer those families? There are many wonderful believers uh, who are over there. But it's also saying this. God strategically placed our church here. Not there, not there, not there. 
here. Interesting, right across from there. And he put us in an area of town where there's some dirt roads of poverty, where there's injustice and there's inequality. And he placed us here. Maybe he placed us here to go there and to speak and to love and to live and to do those things, to expand our tent, to believe that this church here has a vision and a mission beyond ourselves. I like to listen to the BBC World Hour on NPR every day. Haven't heard Hilton Head mentioned lately. Bluffton, sorry. You may be growing in South Carolina, but no one really knows about us beyond that. So I kind of take it this way. We're not all that important in the grand scheme of things in the world economy and in politics and all of that. The problem with that is that too many people move down here with that mentality. I believe this. I look around this church and I see some of the most incredible minds uh, in our country who have led companies, who have loved their spouses well, who have raised their children, who have been incredibly successful, who God has blessed with wealth, who God has blessed with giftedness. And he's brought you all here. Not to retire. He brought you here, as my dad used to say, to refire. To refire your engines. To say, hey, now I'm done with that assignment. And now you have me here in this little Presbyterian church on an island, a nondescript island uh, that is a northern enclave on a southern island. And we're here and we're going to do something great for God here. And through here. And we're going to believe that. Do you believe that? Well we should live like we believe those things. That's why he has you here. Someone once described their spouse this way to me. I said what does your husband do now? And she says he is a really important man. Who's learning how not to be important. He used to lead a massive company. And now he plays golf. I thought, oh, he's missed it. If that man doesn't hear from me and from our church, we need your giftedness here for the kingdom. That you use those gifts which led a Fortune 500 company to an incredible profitability. That you use your gifts within the context of the church to see God do great things and expand our tent. That's why he has you here, not by chance. There's golf courses all over the world. You picked this one to live on. And you picked this church to come to because guess what? I think it was God picking you to pick that church and to pick that golf course because he wanted you here. Expand the tent. And then what he says in verse 2, quit being timid and passive. He puts it this way, don't hold back. We live in a timid and a passive world. We want to sort of conform. We don't want to step too far out. Because guess what happens when you step out? You get targets on you. It's really nice to kind of be over here. I've been an assistant pastor my entire ministry life. And it's the safest place you can ever be. Because I could always point to the senior. He hired me. You can go talk to him. But when you step out. In your school, students. Are you willing to step out? And not be timid? anymore and not hold back families are you willing to not be timid anymore but to raise your children in the love and admonition of the Lord in such a way that it's different and that families come together and support one another in that instead of families within the church looking going really 
my boys, I have to call, and I'm, this is just a rule in our home. If he's gonna, any of my boys are going to spend the night out, I call the family they're going to spend the night with. And I simply say this, hey, just want to make sure that you knew my son spending the night tonight and that that's okay with you. And I did that recently. And the father goes, no, that's not okay. I'm on my way to Chicago. I was like, oh, well, I got wrong information. So I'll make sure that he doesn't spend the night. I saw that father recently. He goes, why do you do that? Was that just like a one-time thing? I was like, no. Don't you want to know where your teenager is at night? Wouldn't you like to know that there's a parent around? Wouldn't you like to know that those teenagers with their broken, sinful hearts uh, aren't opened up to whatever it is that's free to give there? Wouldn't you like to know that other people? And most church people that I know go, huh, what a novel idea. Quit being timid in your parenting. Be bold in those things, in this vision that God's given us. And then he says this, strengthen, we've got to keep moving. Strengthen your cords. What he means by that is don't look at big just to be big. Big to be big is a wrong goal. Big and healthy, great goal. Expanding and healthy, awesome goal. But the way that you stay healthy is that you put your stakes down and you drill them down into the very foundation of God himself in Christ. That we gain our wisdom through God's word and the wisdom that comes and is derived from that. That we don't need the culture to define us and tell us how to do church and how to do things. Uh, but we believe, still silly enough, I'm silly enough to believe that the preaching and teaching of God's word changes lives. I, I'm silly enough to believe that prayer matters. And that the faithful prayers of a righteous person accomplishes much in the world. I, I believe that it's good for Christians to gather together and come to church. I believe that these things, which are sticking stakes way down in the ground, are important and good. And so I never want our church to just go and be big and have the edges all flapping around. But we want to be rooted and solid. So practically speaking, what does it look like? It looks like our church going to places of poverty and speaking the truth and love there. It means that we're going to address the racial issues that face our country and face our own culture here. And we're going to do it with the love and humility that Christ has given to us. That we're going to look at matters of injustice and we're going to stand for those who have no voice. And we're going to provide for those who have no means and we're going to help train them. That we're going to believe for our kids, that we're going to fight for the hearts of those whom we love. That's what it looks like for the church. Do you guys believe that? Do you believe that Christ is able to accomplish that vision? Boy, I do. And that's where we'll end. Because God says this, I'm going to accomplish my vision. <laughs> I didn't just give it to you as an idea, as an ideal. I gave it to you as a very workable plan of action. And it is incredibly attainable. Because this is what I see within this passage. Four times, God says this, thus says the Lord. That, that's kind of important. In my home growing up, when daddy came home, and I hadn't mowed the grass when I was supposed to mow the grass, or I hadn't chopped the wood when I was supposed to chop the wood, because uh, we had a wood-burning fireplace in there, and my dad was of the idea that big, long pieces of wood dropped off by a flatbed uh, in late spring, early summer, would be a good idea for me. To cut them into pieces and split them and stack them cord after cord after cord. And I would get home and he would be home and he'd go, 
Billy could do the wood. If the first word out of my mouth was but, or anything other than yes, sir, there were consequences in my home because my father's voice mattered. Who speaks matters. This is thus says the Lord. And you can trust him. You can trust that he says, I'm going to do this through you because I'm speaking this. And then he reminds us of who he is. Verse 5 is an awesome verse. He says, your maker is your husband. You've got a provider who is also the one who created you. And therefore, he knows you intimately. He knows all of your needs, wants, and desires. He knows you, and he's your provider. The Lord of hosts is his name. For Israel, that would have, or Judah, that would have been really important. They needed an army because Assyria was on the border. And when God says, I'm the Lord of hosts, he means I'm the Lord of all of the arrayed soldiers of heaven itself. I have them at my disposal. When Christ was on the cross, that's what he said to the Roman centurion. He said, don't you know I could call down the legions of heaven if I wanted to. The Lord of hosts is on our side. You are never outnumbered, by the way. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, that you have been redeemed. Chapter 54 comes, interestingly, right after chapter 53. Guess what's in Isaiah 53? The beautiful servant, Christ. For he was broken and battered on your behalf. For he was bruised. For he was not one to be looked at well. But he came and he gave his life for you. He redeemed you from the curse of the law. And he says, now that redeemer is the one who's with you. And then he just throws this in to flavor it at the end. He's the God of the whole earth. That means he's got Hilton Head, he's got Bluffton, he's got every neighborhood in Hilton Head. He's the God of the whole earth. He is supreme in all of those things. And what we can believe is that through his power in us, we can see strongholds broken down by the king who's the king of the whole earth. And we can see, and I'm going to end here with these couple of things and just give them to you as a list. God is faithful to his promises. Verses 9 and 10 speak of his covenant faithfulness to Noah and beyond. And you can know this. If God has been faithful in the past, he will be faithful in the present and he will be faithful in the future. He will accomplish these things. That there is strength and there is permanence and beauty within God's promises. That he's going to do more than we thought or imagined. Verses 11 and 12 basically say this. Hey, I'm going to build you walls and I'm going to build you pinnacles and I'm going to build you gates and I'm going to make the fortress strong. But I'm also going to make it beautiful. It's going to be jeweled because I just can. Isn't that awesome? Why did you do that, God? Because I can. I asked my father-in-law why he bought new golf clubs one time. He said, Bill, because I can. I was like, okay, that's cool. I can't, so I can have your old ones, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, but God isn't saying just this. He's not saying, hey, I'm just going to make you get by in a hut. I'm going to make the church beautiful. And it's going to be beautiful with the redeemed lives of people that are being reached through your ministry and the change that is happening through your ministry. People are going to look at it and they're going to be amazed. And then the final thing he says is this, don't be afraid because no weapon that is forged against you can stand. He says, I'm greater than any opposition that you can ever face. So as we end today, I'll invite the team to come on back up, the worship team. As we end today, I just want to ask you this. Do you believe that?
Do you believe this stuff? <laughs> Man, I do. I do. And I hope that you'll join all of us together to believe incredibly great things that are doomed to fail unless Christ shows up and is in the middle of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blessing of your word that spoke so intimately to Judah and so intimately to us. How amazing is that? Thank you for your promises within the middle of difficult circumstance and that your vision is not limited by our circumstance, but you call your church to thrive and to expand and to do great things in your name in the middle of the place you've set us now. And Father, we trust you today. Help us when we don't trust. We believe. Help our unbelief. For Father, we want to declare to the whole world that Jesus Christ is alive and that all who come to him will be saved. We pray this in his name. Amen.